The Bible reading tonight is from Ezekiel, uh, chapter 34, verse 1 to 24, and it's on page 612 of your Bibles. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and has, no, has not been plundered, has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore... O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds, and I will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will fill feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the, sle the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will, I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. It is, not, it is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture. Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge because between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will lend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be the prince amongst them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Second reading is from John 10, 
starting at verse 1, which is on page 759. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever come before me, who, all who ever came before me, were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Thanks, Nicholas. Good evening, friends. Whoa, good evening. Uh, I'm Simon. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge Saturday night. If you keep open or flick back, if you would, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 34, that'd be a great place to be uh, tonight. As we continue in our series, it's going to come up on the screen in a second. As good as it can get, as good as it gets, uh, six studies in Ezekiel. Tonight we come to this beautiful passage, this beautiful section of scripture. Uh, Ezekiel 34. I hope you heard as it was read some beautiful sounds of hope um, as it was read. Open up Ezekiel 34 and I'll pray. Let's pray together. Our God and our Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we take your word into our hands now and we open it. And we put our lives into your hands that you may open them that we would meet you, the living God, in the pages of the scriptures and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please be our teacher this night. Encourage our faith, 
focus our vision. Strengthen our commitment to walk in your ways as the sheep of your pasture and the flock of your hands. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Here's my big line for tonight, coming up on the screen again. Jesus cares for you more than he cares for himself. There's one thing you can think about tonight. Jesus cares for you more than he cares for himself. That's going to be on the screen the whole night. So you kind of, if you don't remember that by the time you leave tonight, then I'll be worried about you. I'm not going to ask you at the door, by the way, just be careful. My first point, the quest for perfection. It comes up on the screen. It's been an observation of mine. I've been doing some thinking about who we are as human beings. And it's been my kind of, yeah, kind of observation that the quest for perfection is just part of who you and I are. It pervades our culture. The quest for the perfect. It's, a, it's the motivation of a great deal of advertising. It's the motivation of our media, the perfect. Uh, whether it's the perfect home, uh, maybe it's the perfect marriage and the perfect children that come from that marriage. Maybe it's the perfect holiday. Perhaps it's the perfect body that you're after. If you're a surfer, maybe it's the perfect wave. If you're a golfer, maybe it's that perfect round. If you're a barista, if you make coffee, it's the perfect long black. The perfect, the quest for the perfect kind of pervades everything. If you're a Christian, maybe it's the quest for the perfect church. Or maybe, dangerously, it's the quest for the perfect pastor. That one who will just do everything you need him or her to do. The quest for the perfect. Yet we we know ultimately it's just an unsustainable, unachievable kind of idea, the perfect. Nobody is perfect, we say, so we kind of get on and just get on trying something else out. In many ways, however, the search for the perfect is actually a good motivation for us. It kind of pushes us. It kind of helps us to get going and look for something beyond this sort of time and space and reality in which we live. Something It sort of pushes us to think there's got to be something better. There's got to be something better than this place, this space, my life. It, pushes us on to think bigger thoughts. You'll be thankful to know that over the next few Saturday nights, we get to explore the perfect. It's been a hard road, hasn't it? Who agrees? It's been a tough road. Three weeks in Ezekiel, oh my goodness. But as we go over the next three Saturday nights, we actually get to see just how good it will be, how good it can get, how good God is in giving us the perfect kingdom, eternal life. And he gives it to a very, very, very sinful people who don't deserve it. Ezekiel will indeed just show us just how perfect God is and how perfect his heavenly kingdom will be over the next three weeks. You know, because we know the prophet Ezekiel, he's far from home, he's exiled, he's with Thousands of his exiled countrymen, Israel, the nation of God, they're in Babylon, deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. They've been there for years and years and years. And all that was familiar to them is becoming a very sort of distant memory. Jerusalem, God's presence with his people, the temple, all those things, just a distant memory now. More than 500 years before Christ, 
Ezekiel's ministry is focused on Babylon, and so far it's been a ministry of hopelessness, largely. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Ezekiel, the prophet, this man of God, was called to speak to his people. There they are in Babylon, under judgment, exiled. Jerusalem, by this stage, as we come to chapter 34, Jerusalem is fallen. The temple has been smashed. Jerusalem has been razed to the ground. And Ezekiel is called to actually speak to his people and say, you know, God still has purposes for you. And it's the last focus. We, we focus on the fact that God has a purpose for his people and he will bring it about. That's what we focus on beginning here tonight in chapter 34 and as we go on to chapter 48, as we, if you've been here, climb the J-curve. Things have got really bad, now things get really good. The J-curve. Ezekiel 34 to 36 provides one of the clearest bridges we have between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It helps us to see the patterns and paradigms of how God works in his world and through his people. Exactly how he deals with us today. We'll see it. Exactly how he dealt with his people back then is how he deals with us today. His New Testament people. So it's got massive impact for us, this generation, our generation of Christian people. These chapters will show us just beautifully that the Bible is one book telling one big story about one amazing, holy, glorious, perfect God who chooses a bunch of people who aren't particularly beautiful, attractive, or at all perfect and takes them to a heavenly destination. All that was lost in Eden is to be restored in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you even pick that up as we had Ezekiel 34 read and then John chapter 10. You're going to see that. Let me just take a quick digression. I've got a photograph for you on the screen. This is not me. That might be me in a few years' time as the bald patch kind of grows a little bit. Let me just take a, a quick digression. As we look at in understanding Old Testament prophecy and working out what does it mean for you and I in today's day, let me just explain. This is, was a helpful explanation for me. I can't remember who told me this, but it wasn't mine, so let me just put that on the table. Old Testament prophecy and understanding, it's a bit like going on a bushwalk. So here we have me in 20 years, bald patch and all, looking out on the destination. My destination is that last hill in the, in the distance. Understanding the Bible is a bit like going on a long bushwalk. As I stand there, as we sit here, you kind of go, eh, not too far away. You know, just climb those three peaks and I'll get to the last one. But as you sort of get on the journey, you kind of realise far out, there's a long way between these three peaks. Peak number one on the left is understanding the text that we have in front of us, Ezekiel chapter 34. What does it mean for the people of God in this time, in that time, in that place? If we don't understand that with any sense of conviction, we won't really understand what it means for us. Peak number one, understanding what it means for the people of God in that particular time. Peak number two, in the middle, has a cross on the top of it. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death his resurrection, and his return. And so we have to kind of cross through that to understand the passage in, in the, in, you know, so we can really understand it. Peak number two has the cross on it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peak number three, right in the distance, 
after we've crossed through the peak of the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, is the ultimate peak, the eternal kingdom of God, where everything is made right, the city that has its foundations in God, and God is in that place. We are on our way there. That third peak is heaven. The best is yet to come. It's as good as it can get. So I only say that because I want you to keep those three peaks in mind, not the ball patch, three peaks in mind as we go through looking tonight and onwards into the next few weeks. We can really see. Because if you're a Christian here tonight, you are a citizen of peak number three, the heavenly city, God's eternal kingdom. That is your home. This world is not your home. The third peak is your home. And we're on our way there, and it may seem like it's a long way off. But Jesus has promised he will return. And because we belong to that third kingdom, we have a deep longing inside of us for something that's yet to be realized. We have a longing, a deep longing, for the perfect, for something better than this. And we know in Jesus Christ that we will get there one day as we sang earlier. But in these chapters, 34 to 38, there's this wonderful exposition of God's most wonderful and impressive purpose for his people. Did you pick it up? He has this shepherd metaphor running through. The shepherd metaphor in the Bible is a metaphor of kingly rule, God as king governing his flock as shepherd, a kingly rule in righteousness, in love, in grace, in mercy, guiding, tending his flock providing for his flock, guiding his people. And what was true for Israel, those amongst Israel who put their faith in God, is true for all New Testament Christians. We too are the inheritors of the promises that were made way back in the beginning of the Bible to Abraham. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we are God's flock, the sheep of his pasture. I don't know if you like to be referred to as a sheep, I find this a difficult metaphor. I don't like to be felt, you know, sheep often are portrayed as pretty silly, aren't they? We are the sheep of God's pasture. We are his flock. And I want to divide our passage tonight into two big points, the the perfect shepherd's initiative and then the perfect shepherd's identity. Uh, The perfect shepherd's initiative, verse 11 to 22. Have a look with me, friends. Uh, We need to go back to verse 2 in chapter 34, the perfect shepherd's initiative. Uh, Come back with me to verse 2 of chapter 34. We need to look at this to set the context for the whole. Son of man, prophesy against the the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? So in the context here, friends, the pronouncement is against shepherds who are shepherd-focused, not sheep-focused. Rather than living their lives and conducting their work for the benefit of the sheep, these shepherds have, have a look, verse 3, you eat the curds, the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no 
shepherd. Now, these shepherds were probably the kings and the rulers of the kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah before the exile. These are the ones who are being denounced as self-serving rather than sheep-serving. What's happened is that nation had slid further and further away from God as the leaders had failed to fulfill their role in dependence upon God. They've merely exploited the people. They haven't encouraged them to trust in God alone, to hope in God alone. They've used their role for their own wealth, for their own kind of satisfaction and their own name and renown. And the exile has now happened. God has removed them from their land. He's taken them away to Babylon. The flock has been scattered. And in, ver- and in terms of verse 8, have a look at verse 8. They've been ravaged by wild beasts. Verse 8, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals and because my shepherds did not search for my flock but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Whether it's political rulers, whether it's religious rulers, all of them are implicated in this. But the fact remains, God is the true king and shepherd of Israel. He has always been the Lord. From the early days in the Old Testament, this image is used by God for himself. And so here in our passage, the initiative that God takes is to step in and announce himself as the shepherd of God's people. Verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says. And these are are beautiful words. I myself, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. You could paraphrase it by saying, here I am. I'm entering the scene now to do something. I've got an agenda which is going to deal with the mess that my people are in. And as you heard when the passage was read, he's going to restore him his own rule. And it's going to be based on his promises that he'd made way back to his people at the beginning of his covenant. He'll teach his people again the benefits of being under his leadership, under his kingly rule. And he'll bring them back into relationship with himself. He will do it. Verse 11 is the the key text, and the rest of the passage is really like the sermon on that key text. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. I will seek them out, God says. It's really interesting if you're into it. Now, I'm probably not into Hebrew like maybe I can be sometimes, but the Hebrew kind of verb there for I will seek them out or seek them out is used elsewhere in the Bible for uh, when a... um, a leper had been healed in Old Testament times. When a leper had been healed and he claimed, I've been healed, I no longer have leprosy, he'd go to the priest and the priest at the temple would seek him out, would do this kind of thorough investigation of him to make sure that he had been healed. Close examination, really close personal examination. The same verb is used also when, you know, a local Israelite person would bring a, a sacrifice to the temple, like a sheep or a, you know, a lamb or a pigeon. And the priest would seek out that sacrifice to make sure that it was a perfect sacrifice, without blemish, a really detailed examination. Same here. When God says, I will seek out my sheep, it speaks of detailed knowledge and a personal concern a deep concern for one of his flock. 
God himself is coming to the rescue. God himself will seek out his people. And he knows them intimately. Now God's agenda has two parts. When God comes, he will restore his flock and then he will rule the flock. And just look at in verses 12 onwards, just the number of times the I will comes up. Have a look at me. Read with me verse from verse 12. As shepherds look after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day. I will bring them out. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them. I will tend them in good pasture and on the mountain heights. I myself will tend my sheep, verse 15. I will search for the lost. I will bind up the injured. I will shepherd. God takes the initiative. I will. I will. This is, there is absolutely no doubt that God will take the initiative in restoring his people. Because whatever other shepherds may have been around, kings or religious leaders there in the land of Israel, and whatever under-shepherds there may have been against the flock, uh, among, amongst the flock of God today, none of them can be anything like this great shepherd who just goes in, I will do it. It's interesting that in, verse, in the verse that we had where God lists all that he will do. It's exactly the reverse of what the shepherds didn't do. Have a look at me back in verse 4, where God says, I will bring back the strayed, I'll bind up the injured, I'll seek the lost. It's exactly what the the shepherds of Israel weren't doing. Verse 4, you've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the, the injured. You've not brought back the strayed, you've not sought the lost. God will do exactly the opposite, and he will do it. What do the false shepherds fail to do? They fail to do all that God wanted them to do. And so God, the perfect shepherd, will do exactly what he will do. He will bind up the weak. But then suddenly you get this shift about the fat and the strong. He says, I will destroy the fat and the strong. Did you see that at the end of verse 16? I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. You could render that the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Surely you'd want your flock to be strong, perhaps not overly fat, but you want them to be strong at least. Why will he destroy the fat and the strong? What does it mean when he says, I'll feed the fat or the sleek and the strong in justice? The word translated justice in the Hebrew is a word for a king who makes right decisions. Or, you know, the judge calling out a decision that is absolutely right. There's no doubt that his decision is correct. Perhaps the nearest concept we have to this word mishpat is the third umpire in sport. If you're into sport, cricket or rugby. You know, where the umpire, there's a dubious decision, so he does this. And we sort of wait there pensively for the decision to come up on the screen. The third umpire who takes close examination of all the evidence that's around and then makes a clear, definitive decision. That's the closest we have. I, God, as I govern my flock, God says, will do it with perfect wisdom and perfect knowledge, showing them what is right, 
calling out the decision, governing and directing them in the ways of my will. Mishpah, injustice. It's a great encouragement for you and I. I don't know where you find yourself tonight. Some of you may feel like you've strayed. Some of you may feel like you're really wounded. You may feel that you have very little strength left. There are seasons in the Christian life, ups and downs, good times, not so good times. The knowledge that God is our shepherd is such a stimulus and encouragement to us. It was designed to give hope to the exiles. This is why he gave the vision of what he is yet to do to his people. He will bring them back to the land. But it's here tonight, friends, for you, that you would be encouraged. Tonight. For Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you by name. He knows you by name and his ministry to us is one of restoration. He wants to unite his flock. He wants to feed us so that we can grow strong in our Christian lives, lead us into good pasture. He will protect us from our enemies when we follow him. He will heal our wounds. He will renew our strength. But all too often, I think, when we find ourselves in situations where we feel like we're injured and straying and not bound up, I think sometimes we think, I don't think Jesus can really be bothered with me. Or I don't think, you know, sometimes I feel like he's just kind of written us off. He may have strayed, but he specialises in finding lost sheep. You may feel there is this great gap tonight between you and God, a chasm that cannot be bridged. But he's the one who will bridge it. Don't run away. You'll just make the gap bigger. Come back to him. Trust him. He loves to bind up the wounded. He loves to bring back the strayed. He loves to strengthen the weak. This is the character of God. Gracious and a loving Father who delights in restoring his flock. Come back to him. Come to him tonight. But what of these fat and strong ones? What about the sleek and the strong? We need to go back to verses 17 to 19. Not only does he restore the flock, he actually rules the flock as well. We need to know this. Read with me. Have a look. As for you, my flock, verse 17, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Then there's this interesting kind of pastoral picture, verse 18. Is it not enough for you to feed on good pasture? Must you also trample the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. I will save my flock. God, twice, verse 17, verse 20, promises to intervene. Here I am, not just to remedy the ills of those who are abused and not looked after, the scattered people of Israel, but to move in on the ones who are perpetrating it. 
who are revealed to be not outside predators, but predators from within the flock of God. The fat and strong sheep who are living for themselves. Very much like the false shepherds at the beginning of the chapter. In the imagery of the flock, they are butting with their horns and scattering the flock abroad. Uh, One commentator uh, writes, um, he's talking about here the members who are at the top of the butting order, so to speak. I think it's a good way of putting it. You know, it's the attitude of everything's for me and I don't really care about anyone else. As long as I'm fed well and looking out and going okay, I don't really mind about anyone else. That's the attitude, top of the budding order. Verse 18, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Why do you have to bully the flock? Why do you take all the benefits and leave nothing for the flock? Care for yourself and no one else. That's what he's denouncing. And then in verse 21, in very strong terms, he says, you push and you butt, you take all the good stuff for yourself and you leave mud for the rest. I'm going to come and rescue my flock, says God. The shepherd king not only comes to restore the sheep, especially to come and care for the lean, the underprivileged, the weak sheep, for those who need to be strengthened, bound up but he comes to rule the self-centered aggressive members of the flock who seem to care only about themselves and have no time for the weak the implication is that he'll judge them dismiss them and in fact verse 16 he says i will destroy them friends if this is the picture that we're given of god coming to his people i will restore i will rule my flock for me at least the obvious question is when did all this happen When did all this happen? When did God come and finally restore the flock and rule his flock? Ezekiel is speaking words in exile. When did it all come about? Well, it's true. Cyrus the Mede uh, conquered the Babylonian Empire uh, not so long after this, a few decades. And he actually allowed all the exiled people to return to their lands, to, to, to return to their cities and kind of rebuild their lives. Judah or Israel was resettled. They actually went back to Jerusalem and kind of began to rebuild the place. But the prophets that God gave after those events, the last three prophets in your Old Testament text, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, they were quick to realize that this was just a limited return. Even with the rebuilding of the temple, that was not the true fulfillment of what God had promised. The great promises of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and here in Ezekiel. The exile didn't actually really end just with the return to Jerusalem. You'll know the exile really ends at the beginning of our New Testament. That's when the exile ends. It ends with the voice of John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, announcing the arrival of the king who will be the good shepherd of his flock. The shepherd who will take the sins of his people upon himself and become the sacrificial lamb. Remember when John sees Jesus walking down the road in the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1? What does he say? Oh, look, here's another man wearing sandals and a white gown. No, he says, behold, the lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The shepherd who comes to take upon himself the sins of the world. 
the connection, friends, therefore, is this. It's not just for Israel. It's for the sins of the world, people of all nations. What happened in the Babylonian exile is just a small picture of what happened to the whole world when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Turned their backs on God, rebelled against their creator. Decided that I'll shepherd my own life. I'm not going to let God shepherd my life. Not to have him as God and we were exiled from perfection in the garden. And friends, tonight we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. All sons of Adam, all daughters of Eve. That is why we yearn for something better. That is why we long for something better. Because even if it's the dimmest, darkest memory, we still have memories of what it was like to be with God in perfect relationship. We need the rescue. We're all in this picture. And Jesus Christ brings it to fulfillment. We know that when Jesus began his ministry, Matthew tells us, what did Jesus say when he came into the world? He saw the people and he said he had great compassion on them, on the multitudes, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He wasn't just talking to Israel, all people. He had compassion on because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And friends, he still has that same compassion. He makes, therefore, an amazing commitment to be the remedy, the good shepherd, to renew and to restore his flock and to rule in righteousness. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We see here Jesus, the good shepherd. John chapter 10. I tell you the truth, verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find good pasture. There is the provision of God. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. We see in that Jesus' protection. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's the rescue. And down to verse 14, John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. They are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them all in also. That's you and me. That's the Gentiles, the nations. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. This is not just a sentimental old Sunday school picture of a Lord Jesus Christ cradling a nice little lamb. This is a direct claim by Jesus to be the rescuer of Ezekiel chapter 34 and the judge of Ezekiel chapter 34, protecting the flock, even at the cost of his own life, uniting the flock under his sovereign rule. Jesus cares for you more than he cares for himself. The good shepherd lays down his life for you and I. 
searching for the lost sheep until he finds them. Judging on the last day between those who are sheep and those who aren't his real sheep. Flick back with me. Sorry, I should have told you to keep a thumb back in Ezekiel chapter 34. Come back with me in Ezekiel chapter 34. Where we actually meet in verses 23 and 24 the identity of the shepherd. It's up on the screen, at least the little phrasing. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23 to 24. Look at the great promise of God here uh, in verse 23. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. Here's his identity. My servant David, he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The initiatives we've seen that God will send a shepherd to be rescuer and to restore, they belong to God alone. God says, I am going to do it. But look at who will do it. How? The agency here is fully described. Here is the good shepherd. 500 years before it actually happened. Here's the perfect one, the perfect shepherd king. Note in verse 23, he's set over them, raised up by God. But he's one, he's in the line of David, but he's greater than King David. Not raised up by popular election, but placed by God himself to be the rescuer and ruler. And notice he's one shepherd, my servant David. One flock, one shepherd. Notice he's the Lord's servant in David's line, fulfilling God's promise to provide an eternal dynasty, a kingdom that will never end, and a king who'll sit on the throne who will never die and rule forever and ever. And he provides for all that his people need. He feeds them, sustains them, protects them, guides them. And in verse 24, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises, will be their God and be their king. David's successor will be a prince, one who is greater than David, to rule them. Ruling together with the sovereign king, Jesus himself said, the things I say and the works that I do are those that are given to me by my heavenly father. There'll be one shepherd over them, verse 23, and prince among his people, verse 24. This is how God is our God. Amongst us, with us by his spirit. He's over us as our king. He's our saviour, yet he is also our Lord, ruler and rescuer. So all the covenant promises of the Old Testament find their fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the peaks? And we can say that with confidence because, not just because the Bible teaches us, absolutely because the Bible teaches us, but because there has been no one else in the last two and a half thousand years who's been anything like this apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the one great shepherd. He's the one who brought about the covenant of peace through his life and his atoning blood shed for us on the cross. So friends, the Lord has spoken and it's been wonderfully fulfilled. 
So all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will rescue us from judgment, to renew us and restore us, can share with the words of King David in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is fulfilling his promises. He is a God to be trusted. He is a God who has intimate knowledge of his flock, accompanied with astounding depths of care that is personal and his commitment is total for you. When we appropriate this good shepherd's care and accept his death as the only means for our forgiveness, this good shepherd who laid down his life, when we allow him to deal with our own rebellion, when we are not so concerned about being the fat and the strong, being the important people at the top of the budding order amongst the flock, when we follow this shepherd, we too must be humble, meek and lowly of heart. Concerned about the weak, Concerned about the injured and the strayed and the lost. We must submit to his rule and recognize that his is the pattern to follow. Friends, Ezekiel preaches the gospel to us. Ezekiel chapter 34 preaches the gospel to us. Jesus, our shepherd king, the rescuer, is also our judge. He removes all evil and he declare he will declare justice his kingdom will be perfectly righteous removing everything that is unrighteous in this world and friends this has to be the transforming perspective that you take into your week this week in the knowledge and the truth of his total commitment to you as his sheep such amazing care and compassion, bound up, strengthened, and encouraged by this. But also, if you're one of those fat or strong ones and you're throwing your weight around, hear God's word tonight. If you think you're at the top of the budding order, God says, watch out. It's not how he wants you to be. Friends, tonight's message for us is don't despair. Don't give up. Come back to him as your shepherd king. Submit to him and experience him as the God who brings peace, abundance and care. He seeks you out. He will bind up your injuries. If you've strayed, come back to him and receive his care and build each other up in this. Strengthen each other to follow him. Friends, our future is bright. That third peak is a reality. We are citizens of that heavenly kingdom if you're a Christian tonight. Live under the good shepherd who comes to seek and save the lost, to bind up the injured, to bring back the strays. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, Lord God, your staff, Lord God, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we just thank you this night that Jesus has come, he has conquered death, he has conquered sin, and he has laid his life down. The good shepherd has laid his life down for us, his sheep. Father, thank you that he knows us. Father, thank you that you know us intimately and you care for us all. I pray, Father, that tonight we'd be so encouraged by this and comforted by it. Father, please stir in us tonight, those of us who have not yet come to this good shepherd, may we do that this night, receive his care and his abundant provision, that we all would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.